This is the Garden DC podcast, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Jentz. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. Welcome to episode 184 of the Garden DC podcast. In this episode, we talk with horticulturist Miri Talabak all about spring garden prep. The plant profile is on Sinetti, and we share what's going on in the garden as well as some upcoming local gardening events and this week's garden tasks in the What's New segment. We close out with a last word on Gathering Grapefruits by Christy Page of Green Prince. This episode, we're joined by Mary Talabak. She is a horticulturist with the University of Maryland Extension, and she is also our columnist with Washington Gardener Magazine for the Ask the Expert column. Welcome, Mary. Hi, Kathy. So it's great to have you on the podcast finally, and we can pick your brain, that expert brain that we talk about in the magazine. (laughs) And we're going to talk all about getting ready for spring and all the tasks we need to do, maybe some things we don't need to do. Those are always my favorite things on a to-do list to cross off. Yeah, do's and don'ts. I mean, at some point, sometimes the don'ts are almost more important than the do's. So Mm -hmm. yeah, both sides. So before we dive into that, let's dial it back all the way to baby Mary. And I want to ask you, were you born with chlorophyll in your veins and a green thumb? I think it's fair to say yes. Um, I've always been attracted to basically all things nature, biology, outdoors. Um, My childhood, when it wasn't indoors uh, in the morning, you know, like in the summer break from school or in hot weather, you know, surrounded by Lego. I was outside. Um, If not in the yard, I was bicycling around with a butterfly net. Uh, At some point really early, before I really have clear memories of it, I became sort of interested in insects and fascinated by them. And butterflies are a good gateway insect for for anyone. So I became interested in raising butterflies, um, some of the really big moths. I love those very large silk moths that we have. And praying mantids, they were another sort of pet that I would uh, seek out. So I would spend a lot of time outside just uh, yeah, I'd run around with a butterfly net seeing what I could find and catch and hopefully get it to lay eggs for me and, and raise them just to let them go again. And and I did get drafted into some garden work also. So there was some like daylily foliage cleanup in the summer and mulching the beds and uh, sort of your, your standard garden chores. Um, helping to plant, I think. I think when I was some point in, somewhere in grade school, we had one of those projects where you could take home vegetable transplant seeds that you germinated. I think I had radish. I'm remembering a photo. And there's a photo of me holding up uh, proudly the harvested radishes, which I don't even actually like (laughs) to eat. So I think the the family enjoyed those. But it was a fun experience. I think radish, corn, a couple of things I grew myself. And um, my mother did a lot of gardening indoors and outdoors. Uh, African violets were the main houseplant at the time. And I've since, as I progressed on my gardening journey and became just sort of sucked into horticulture, um, because it's just so, so addictive now to me, that I adopted the plant stand that my parents built uh, by hand, including mm-hmm. one of the fixtures that still works. <laughs> I transitioned a lot to LEDs in my grow lights, but one of the fluorescents still works, still going strong. So I'm still using that. So uh, where I am now, I don't have my own yard, but so I do a lot of indoor gardening. Um, someday I'll get get some nice plots outside to play with. But that's been sort of the journey. Is and my career path. Uh, well, let me back up to to school and college. I majored in entomology for a bachelor's because I had enough interest that that's. I didn't know quite what I wanted to do with it because uh, they don't really send you into the Amazon with a butterfly net to, as a paid job. But I, I did know that it was interesting enough. I wanted to pursue that. And I, so I got my degree. And then uh, right around there is when I was doing my first job, um, Banky Nurseries, some longtime listeners may be familiar with. And that's where I started as a part-timer and morphed into full-time as I, as I got out of school. And then progressed through a couple different departments and a couple different roles, um, culminating in the buyer for the woody plant department. So the tree, ordering all the trees and shrubs and Christmas trees year round. 
Uh, and that was great fun. And I love working with everyone there. It's, it's great sort of camaraderie and you get to see as a plant nerd, you know, all sorts of fresh plants coming in throughout the seasons. It's, it's a wonderful exposure to all sorts of plants and it's just fun seasonal excitement. So I stuck with Banky's for about 22 years uh, until they closed, uh, enjoyed it all and the people I worked with. And so when that transition happened, I found a position at uh, University of Maryland Extension, so HGIC, our Home and Garden Information Center, uh, had an opening for a horticulturist. Um, where I'm on the team that answers the questions from the Ask Extension service. So any Marylander sends in questions about home gardening, indoor, outdoor, any topic, and uh, the team I work with will answer them, uh, try and get them out in within a couple days, uh, weekdays. and. We've had a lot of great interactions. There's experienced gardeners, there's novice gardeners, uh, everything in between. So it's, it serves a lot of people and it's a great free service. So it's it's fun to troubleshoot. I like the problem solving, the questions we get. And we have uh, we have a plant pathologist and some entomology consultants that we can, we can reel in if we have a puzzler. So it's really good, well-rounded exposure to all sorts of gardening topics. And uh, that's where I am now. So yes, I joined HGIC in 2019, um, but before that, my one and only uh, career was was a retail garden center. So yeah, it's been steeped in horticulture for a long time, but I still do enjoy my insects and they're so closely tied that it, it's a good sort of marriage of, of interests. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't imagine a more perfect job for you, Mary. So I'm, I'm glad you landed there. And uh, I was going to say that Banky's, you know, a lot of us miss it so terribly. I, I do too, imagine, yeah. Yeah, that the staff does as well. I know you all still keep in touch years later. We do. Yeah. We, we socialize, we see each other when we can. Uh, everyone, a lot of folks went in different directions, but it is amazing to think that a lot of the folks I've met through Banky's have gone on to wonderfully, you know, local and prestigious uh, placements like Smithsonian and um, the Capitol uh, grounds and the U.S. Botanic Garden and the Arboretum and, you know, a bunch of different, the Brookside Gardens, I'm sure, a bunch of directions. So it's, it's just nice that we sort of sprinkled ourselves out into local horticulture. It makes keeping in touch easier, too. So mm-hmm. it's nice to still have that family. And I, I see people at, at Mance, the trade show and, and things. So that it's nice to keep in touch with folks. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. Well, let's turn to spring garden prep because... Yes. It is late winter now as we're recording this and spring is knocking on the door. And so our gardeners out there are champing at the bit, so to speak, to get out there and garden and maybe tackle some things to get, you know, a little bit ahead of the curve. They can start doing some things now in the garden. Um, So let's talk about edible gardening first Mm -hmm. on that side. So if you have a vegetable plot set aside or you're at a community garden and have a plot there, um, Probably you're not growing much over the winter. You might have some, you know, kale or that sort of thing, but maybe you planted a cover crop. So when do we get rid of that cover crop and then start the new things? So cover crops are a great way to help protect the soil for the winter and gardeners will use them to, you know, reduce erosion, um, keep the microbes in the soil happy with live plant roots and to, um, to suppress some of the weeds. They're not going to be a foolproof way to get complete weed control, but it helps keep those in check. So removing the cover crop that you may have established uh, for the winter months or even just sown for to cover the early part of spring is done sort of as late as you can before you get ready to transplant into the ground, either seed, direct sowing seeds or putting transplants in when the soil is the right temperature. So the crops that don't die on their own because of the winter, you can terminate or, or kill off, usually by just mowing them really low, sort of just scalping all that foliage off, covering them up with a temporary tarp. I mean, if you use landscape fabric, you're going to be taking that off before you plant. Um, Something more biodegradable might be nice for the microplastic concerns. But in either case, you're going to occult it, which is what they call blocking the light. So any remnants that would be re-sprouting are now starving because they don't get the sunlight they need. And you keep that cover on, might be two or three weeks. It depends on the vigor of the crop you're trying to get rid of. But once they are suppressed, you can go ahead, take the cover off, leave the debris if you can, because it's just a good free mulch now that's going to serve as compost as it breaks down. Mm-hmm. And then you can plant straight through that. And if you have seed, you probably want to move it out of the way a little more, but you can go ahead and plant right through that debris. It's going to break down and get out of your way soon enough. You could still get a few weeds coming through there. So do 
monitor that. But that way you've got just a nice mulch in place um, to help hold the soil. And as it degrades, you're getting a little bit of fertilizer from that organic matter. And that's the simplest thing. If you need to clear it off, I would compost it if you have a, a compost pile at home. But I would leave it if you can. Mm-hmm. Especially if it's like one of the legume family and you want to keep all that good nutrients and and nitrogen right there in the soil. Exactly. Yeah. Crimson clover is uh, one of the common ones used for that. And you want to go ahead and speaking of a flowering one, that crimson clover that can sometimes self-sow. As far as timing, terminating it would be, you kind of want to back off from, calculate backwards from when you're going to be putting things in the ground. But your other benchmark is when they're going to set seed because you want to stop them before they go to seed. So And that can vary a little when they start blooming because of the temperature trends. But you're going to want to probably mid-April for Central Maryland is about a good time frame. And Mm -hmm. so go ahead and and get them mowed down before like the crimson clover is going to start setting seed. It might be tough to do because they're coming into bloom and they're going to look gorgeous. But (laughs) get get rid of them because then you don't want the seedlings coming up. And even though I don't think it behaves invasively in Maryland, you just just eliminate the weed problem by having them um, taken down before they go to seed. Mm-hmm. So if we're starting a new garden bed, say yes. for our vegetable garden, what's our first step we should be doing in getting prepped for spring? I would start once you've chosen the site, because a lot of edible plants really need full sun to thrive and produce a good crop. So full sun, six plus hours minimum of direct sun. Um, they're going to get that easily when the trees haven't leafed out yet, but you kind of want to think of full sun as once the trees are leafed out. So even though we're not there yet, because sort of think ahead. So a full sun, very well-drained site. Raised beds is something you can consider if drainage is not horrible, but uh, needs improving. So once you have the site selected, what I would do is test the soil. Um, not a compost mix that might be going in a raised bed, because testing of that material is a little different, but the actual in-ground soil, the mineral soil, and there's a soil testing page in the HGIC web resources that you can find a list of some local labs like Delaware and in surrounding Maryland. So taking a sample is fairly straightforward. Uh, and we have that information online, but you would just mail that with the, the small payment to the lab. Let them know the plants you're interested in growing because what they send back to you as far as recommendations for what to add is going to depend on what you tell them you're growing. So if you have lawn there now, for example, don't don't check off lawn, check off vegetable beds if that's what you're doing. And then uh, see what the results come back. Probably will come back pretty quickly, either digitally or in the mail. And then we can help guide you with that also as far as what the results mean. So they're going to look at the acidity, which is pH. They're going to look at some of the major nutrient levels and how much organic matter the soil has. There might be optional tests, like for in-ground vegetables, adding on a a lead test might be useful because it's not so much that the plants are going to absorb the lead. It's that the soil that's contaminated with lead, if it's above a certain level, because a small amount everyone's going to have, uh, and they'll, they'll outline that on the results is you don't want that soil contaminating what you're harvesting because you're going to want to wash it anyway. But just just knowing what's in the soil is very informative. And then you can go from there about planning everything from the layout to what crops you want to grow and the timing based on the crop and the temperatures and everything. But the soil test is really good foundation to start with. Mm -hmm. That's such a good point about the lead in the soil. And I think another concern about it is that making it into the air so when you're digging or disturbing a site with heavily leaded soil, you know, you're breathing it in basically is what you're causing. So in that case, you definitely want to go with a raised bed. Yes. And that's another benefit of something like green mulch, which is essentially just a living mulch, like a ground cover or cover crops in that case, is is keeping the soil covered and keeping it from being windblown or tracked into the house. Or So for example, if you have children or pets that would be playing in exposed dirt, Knowing if you have a high, a concerningly high lead level, you want to, you know, keep as much soil covered and undisturbed as you can. So that's just a good information. And so don't be alarmed that if if there's a minor amount of lead that shows up in the test, everyone's basically going to have that, especially from um, former lead pollution, like leaded gasoline years ago. But if it's above a certain point, then then you can take some precautionary steps. But and raised bed is an excellent way to just get it above that level. Mm-hmm. And so for the ornamental beds, do you recommend doing soil testing in springtime as well for those? Yeah, I kind of, it's a bit of a broken record sometimes when I'm answering questions because just about anybody, if the situation calls for it, I'll recommend soil testing because it's hard to know 
what changes you may want to make or need to make without knowing where you are. So especially that comes up when folks are asking about acidity, like I'm growing blueberries or maybe use or lilac or something that appreciates a little closer to neutral or even alkaline. So just knowing what the conditions currently are is very valuable because for two reasons, it will give you a, a bookmark to know how much change you need to make. But it also will tell you what the conditions are that you may decide to work with because it's a lot easier to work with what you have uh, and, and instead of trying to change the condition to suit specific plants. And I certainly understand when folks want to really fit something in because of nostalgic value or they really want you know a certain plant and then you may need to make adjustments like blueberries or, or anything that really likes more acidic than average soil, for example. But where possible, it's always best to see what you have and then work with that with with as few changes as possible. Because something like changing soil acidity kind of was an uphill battle. The soil is going to tend to revert back to what it's is what we call parent material. It's what the soil formed from, the rock that you know, eons ago it broke it down from. And so there's only so much change you're going to be able to do. It's sort of like pushing something and it's going to slowly push back. You You need to keep doing that. And so it's just easier in the long run to not have to worry about that. But if, yeah, ornamental beds, turf grass, especially, it's it's useful to get that soil test. You don't need to do it every season, every year. Three years is usually a good interval for most things, but it's a valuable data point to start with. And if you don't understand the results, that's perfectly understandable. We have a web page about how to interpret the results, but you can also send the questions into that Ask Extension service and we can help interpret them for you. Mm-hmm. And I should note that um, for listeners who are outside of Maryland, you can contact your local extension service and they can point you to the local soil test labs that they might recommend and also be able to interpret testing for you in your locality. Yes. So one of the major tasks that I know a lot of people think about in spring is they're like, oh, I put maybe some mulch out last year and now it's looking pretty bare out there around my shrubs and trees. So do you need to wood chip mulch around all that stuff? I think whether you go with a biodegradable or organic, in other words, a non-living mulch, like a bark or wood chips or living mulch, it's usually better to do one or the other versus neither. Uh, because some of the advantages that we touched on before, that's going to minimize erosion, it's going to help keep the microbes in the soil, give them a food source, because they kind of work in a partnership with live plant roots. And so by giving them something, because they, they sort of need to take some of their energy resources from the plant roots, and they're giving a lot back in return. So that it's sort of a two-way street. And so having live roots from something in the ground or active growth as much of the year as possible is beneficial. And then it's suppressing the weeds, which is a two-way street too. If you want some plants, like some of your native plants, for example, to self-seed, yes, mulches can impede that, but they're also impeding the weed seeds. So there's some give and take you can play with with that. But I say if you're going to go with a non-living mulch, um, definitely something biodegradable. The rubber mulches uh, I am not a fan of, and uh, there's probably a number of potential environmental consequences from using those, but something biodegradable is nice because it's acting almost like a double duty. It's doing the the mulch protection, but as it breaks down, it's now becoming compost. So Mm -hmm. it's almost like it's amending the soil for you passively, which is nice because you don't have to disturb the soil to get it in there. All the worms and insects and everything that's tunneling into the soil is going to sort of naturally till that in for you slowly and gently. So I would say uh, I have read Washington State University has a good publication about this. Arborist wood chip mulch is what they call basically when you see one of the wood chipper trucks driving around the fresh cut wood chips. They can be a fantastic resource. But even the bark mulches like the pine bark or the shredded hardwood or the cedar, that should be fine. Pine needle mulch, I think, is something that a lot of folks forget about because we just don't see it very often in this area. But that's another good option. So it can be based on aesthetics. But Mm -hmm. if you're going with that, those are some choices. Or you could do a living mulch. I know advocates of more ecologically sustainable gardening would recommend using a ground cover, um, preferably a mix of species for, for reasons we can get into. But it's going to um, serve the same function, but you get you can get more aesthetic value out of it too. But it's also going to fill in faster, especially if you have a new garden bed. And by doing that, you're reducing the need to deal with any weeds because it's just it's filling all that space faster. And so the weeds now have less of an opportunity to get in there. 
Well, as you know, I'm a big ground cover fan. Yes. <laughs> and living a green mulch is what I would recommend. And then you don't have to reapply that once living mulch all the time. Exactly. So it can be labor saving. If, if the plants are thriving, unless you need to do any little editing or, or make changes for aesthetics, then yes, it's kind of self-perpetuating, which is a really nice feature. Mm-hmm. And so it also looks nicer, right, Mary? I think so. I'm, I understand uh, the aesthetic that people sometimes prefer, which is to have things just sort of set apart and mulched. I, I get the organizational appeal that visual can have, but my personal preference is more cottage garden style. And I think scientifically there's a bit of a backup for that, which is the weed competition and just having more plant diversity. And um, there was a study I listened to at a conference recently as it pertained to where you put milkweed plants in a garden. And the take-home message was basically that in that case, surprisingly, keeping some things a little separated can be useful, but uh, it's not a, a make or break. It's it's going to depend on the situation and, and, of course, what you want it to look like aesthetically. You could do different styles depending on where in the yard you're gardening. But, yeah, I'm, I am in the camp and the fan of, of doing a mixed ground cover, a living ground cover is your mulch where possible. Mm-hmm. The next thing on my to-do list which I keep putting off because, you know, habitual procrastinator is the sharpening and cleaning of my garden tools. So what do you recommend for tackling that? Yes. Uh, as far as services, I imagine there's probably several options, um, potentially even local hardware stores, especially the independent businesses, but, and maybe other garden centers too would have tool sharpening sessions. But pr- hand pruners, shears, uh, shovels even, um, spades, mower blades. If you didn't put them away sharpened at the end of the season and cleaned, then now's a good time to catch up with that. So you sort of get all the sap residue or whatever. It might be gumming up the tool surface first and then get it sharpened. And a sharp cut on a plant is going to be, I mean, like people really, is going to be able to heal or seal itself better and and more effectively than a rough one. Mm-hmm. And I have to say that I've always been grateful when I did sharpen the edges of my trowels and shovels, how much easier it is to dig after that. Yes, especially if you get a good little oiling on the like the pruner blades and you get them sharp and clean. It's it's much pleasant, much more pleasant experience to prune after that. I've experienced that too. And it's it's a good reminder of, oh, I should be doing this more often because this is easier to, to deal with now. Mm-hmm. And speaking of pruning... What should we be pruning at this point in the year? Okay, this is something where sometimes we have to hold ourselves back because you see a bunch of what looks like dead twigs everywhere and you just want to think, I got to get this all cleaned up because it's going to look fresher and or maybe I'm concerned about an HOA criticism or or any number of reasons. But we kind of have to sit and just put the tools down for just a moment and think because even though pruning a plant at the wrong time is usually not a serious health problem for the plant, for the most part, there's maybe some exceptions, it's going to interrupt potentially the aesthetic value. So the flowers and maybe even the berries or or edible fruits that you're going to get. So there's a simple way to sort of break it down into two groups that you're dealing with. You have the plants that are going to bloom in spring, and I realize there is no really set upon date where that stops and it's summer, but spring blooming plants, often shrubs and trees, and then your summer and later bloomers. And the reason there's that difference is because the plants that bloom in the spring have grown the flower and leaf buds that they're going to expand way back last year, probably maybe even as early as July last year. It depends on the plant. And that bud has developed, it's fully, it's like a little miniaturized flower, just sort of not expanded. And so it's got little water in it. So it's very small. It's like a miniaturized version of its future self. And it's going to sit there dormant on those stems until the seasonal cues of spring make them absorb water and just expand to their full size. So the buds, even if you don't notice them, are there for things like azalea, uh, lilac, forsythia, some, a number of viburnums, uh, redbud, dogwood, there's a long list, certain spireas. And so those are plants that you don't want to prune now because if you do, or or before they bloom really, between now and when they bloom, because if you prune them, you're going to be cutting those flowers off and the plant will not be able to replace them by the time it flowers. So again, this is not a health problem for the plant. This is a detraction from its appeal to you if you take those buds off. Um, and the plants that are summer blooming are the ones that haven't even developed those flower buds yet. So 
others, some of the Japanese spirea, um, certain hydrangeas, the ones that bloom later in the season, as the wood, the, the new stems, grows this season after spring moves into summer, they're going to be developing those buds right before they open. So they're not losing any flowers if you trim them now. So that can be a good breakdown. And I know hydrangeas are a group that trip a lot of people up because there's several different kinds and it's like, well, which one do I have? So that's one that I would say if you don't know the name of your hydrangea, because that would make it easier to determine the group, think about when it flowers and what the flowers look like. Uh, we have a new web page we just revised extensively um, about pruning hydrangeas that kind of guide you, walks you through that process. But essentially, if it's the easy one to tell is if it's that big mop head, that's sort of snowball shaped flowers, especially in the, the blue and the purple and the deep pink, those are, they're what we call big leaf hydrangeas. And those are the ones that bloom primarily on old wood. Uh, that's the term we use for the, the stems that grew last year. And so those buds are on the plant right now for the flowers. And if they were to be cut, they, they would um, be gone until the plant cycles through another season. So the one complicating factor is the hydrangeas that bloom more than once. Um, the series Endless Summer became popular for this, but they're far from the only group that does that. There's a lot now that do. And you've got leeway with those. That's the nice thing. So if winter or hungry deer or trimming takes the flowers off, they're going to still produce flowers that year, but they'll just do it later. So that there's like a little bit of uh, wiggle room to forgive pruning mistakes with that group, which is nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hydrangeas can be so complicated. So we have a episode of Garden DC that we had Lorraine Bellato, a hydrangea expert on. And I think that's one of our most popular episodes, actually. And I'll, I'll put that in the show notes and link to that for people who want a whole primer on hydrangea pruning and knowing which hydrangea is what. Because, yeah, we could go on and on about that. And then the next thing I'm going to ask you about could be a whole show itself, yeah. uh, which is vines and clematis, which we've covered in the past on the podcast as well. Mm -hmm. But are you cutting back any of your vines or pulling them down? Or what are you doing this time of year, Mary? As a short answer, I'd say not really. You're not really pruning them. But it'll depend on your goals. Some might need a nice just visual refresher because as the plant gets older, I mean, vines by their nature, of course, are climbing up a support or rambling through a support. So they're going to keep getting taller or longer, depending on the shape of the support the older they get. And so as is normal for a lot of plants when they do that, the bottom, the, the oldest stems closest to the ground can get leggy, which basically just means more bare of foliage and more um, visually unappealing really is all that means. It's not a problem. Uh, so to either eliminate that to like give the plant a reset visually, um, you could renewal prune, which is what we call for any plant, even certain shrubs like uh, red twig dogwood, you would be taking that old growth down very drastically. So yes, you may sacrifice a season of flowers to get the plant through this stage to just give it a sort of just that a refresh. You give it a drastic haircut, let it grow back. Maybe it takes a year to get to the point where those stems are old enough to start flowering the following year, but then you've just got a nice reset that'll last you for a few years. So if that's your goal, um, the pruning timing matters less because you're probably getting rid of flowers for a year anyway. But I would say generally you could do an in-between where like with some clematis because of the complications of when they bloom impacts when they get trimmed or how they could get trimmed to interfere with flowering as little as possible. You could do sort of an intermediate. You can take some stems and cut them way back and leave others because that way the ones that are left will bloom and then the new growth when it's at the right stage will then bloom as well. Or you could just leave it. Um, you, there's plantings you could put around the base of a leggy vine to help hide that if you don't like the bare stems for the bottom few feet. A perennial something, depending on the vine, maybe a lush fern or something that gets two, three feet high but dies back would be a good companion. But So there's ways to stage vines in areas where that legginess that's natural is not very visible. And then you don't really need to worry about it. Um, roses are another one of those groups that can bloom mostly on old wood, which is last year's growth but some on new wood. Uh, some of the hybrids do both. So that can depend. That, that'll give you some wiggle room in how you want to prune because you'll lose fewer flowers if you guess wrong. Uh, but again, it's not a health problem for the plant if you just say, well, we can write this year off and we'll give it a hard prune and, and we'll just wait for it to grow back. Yeah, and I think that's something that we can almost add to our don't need to do list a lot of times is we think we need to prune every shrub or touch every shrub in our I landscape. Agree. 
and yeah i think mostly we can if unless it's in the way hitting you in a pathway or or really densely growing so it's not getting good air circulation a lot of them could be left alone i agree in my opinion i think gardeners tend to think they should be doing it for the sake of the plant and Yes, there's some occasions that may be true, but generally, no. It's the plant will tolerate the pruning uh, either well or not, depending on the plant. But it's more about you're going for the aesthetic you want. If you want a manicured look or maybe refreshing that red twig dogwood, because when they send up those young stems, they're the brightest color, that bark, until they get older. So there are reasons to do it aesthetically, but for the health of the plant or the performance of the plant, as far as its vigor and its how well it's growing for you, generally it's you can it's kind of more of a hands-off. I think people don't realize that some, at least of these perennials and trees and shrubs, are lower maintenance than they may think, because you'll see a lot of hedged plants um, in commercial landscapes or maybe home landscapes and think that's what needs to be done. But it's, it's a personal aesthetic choice. It's not uh, for plant health. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I like to look at the tag, read about the plant, and if it says it's going to be three to six feet, you know, keep it within that size. If if it sends out some wild branch that's outside of that, you know, cut that back. But otherwise, you exactly. don't need to be. It's like, easier to over prune than mm-hmm. to under prune, especially when you keep plant health in mind. It, you can have more problems arise from pruning too much, uh, too excessively or too often, either, either way, than if you, you don't. Well, speaking of pruning and looking at our landscape, we're eyeing those perennial beds. And so last fall, a lot of us took the Leave the Leaves campaign seriously and have left our perennial plants up for the seed heads for wildlife and left the leaves, leaf litter where it lays now. How soon should we be cleaning that out? I would argue that we should not be cleaning that out. Um, Again, this is another one of those, there's a degree of personal preference here for aesthetics. And if there's any, say, HOA rules that you're concerned about. But there has been some discussion online. I've seen a lot of people talking about this issue because awareness is growing, which is great to see that, you know, when is this magic time? When is th- when have things emerged? When have, especially those stem nesting bees are the good poster child for the, some of the wildlife using these resources? And I suppose that, I mean, there's some mention of like the 50 degree temperature mark, but it's really not that cut and dry because Xerxes Society has a good resource or two about this, about how to use different elements of habitat to support these pollinators, because the bees that overwintered in the stems might be emerging at a certain point, but they're going to turn right back around and use the stems or, or different stems for the next generation of bees. And so it's sort of mostly a mm-hmm. continuous cycle. So at some point when you're cutting things down, you might be uh, depriving them of some habitat. So a workaround could be if you are going to do some cutback or even a partial cutback, because Xerces does recommend a certain, I think it's eight to 24 inches, but they do have a good graphic online that's pretty simple of stem height. So what you do remove, you could bundle, whether you tie it or just keep it bundled together and place it, if you want to be tidy, place it in like a tomato cage or place it in an out of the way part of the yard. And that way, preferably probably in the same orientation it was like laying up or, or standing standing up or laying down. And then that way, whatever's in those stems can still use them hopefully and still emerge safely, even if they have to pick something else to nest in because the stems start to degrade. But that way, as far as the stems go, yes, if something was diseased, you have to make a decision. Do I give up some of the benefits that leaving this the leaf litter and the stems provides in trade-off to keep the disease suppressed or the pest that was that broke out in tra- as a trade-off as a way to suppress it without having to rely on pesticides or any other intervention? So that's a personal decision. Uh, the leaf litter itself, same thing. It's going to compost in place. I mean, if you do on any wooded trails or just see natural habitats this time of year. We're not inundated with with multiple feet of years of buildup of leaves. They will break down and some like oak are slower than others, but there are a lot of organisms in the soil that will start breaking that down faster as we warm up. And so it's just adding a natural compost layer by itself if you just leave them. And it's not a critical thing to remove them from plants that had disease. Say you had a, a bee bomb, Monarda, with powdery mildew last year. Mm. It's not a guarantee that you won't get powdery mildew if you rake all those old leaves up. I mean, it can help, but spores of a lot of common plant diseases will just drift in on the wind. They'll splash off the soil with rain. So even if you do clean up, um, it's something that there's still a risk of disease again. So it's 
I, in my opinion, I would rather reap the benefits of keeping that material there and risking another outbreak of something than getting rid of it, potentially still having an outbreak and then having lost that nice free resource. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's such a struggle, you know, gardeners being told so many different things about that timing. Um, and of course, as you mentioned, if you're in an HOA or somewhere else that stipulates that you must do a cleanup in the spring, they they really have to struggle with this matter yeah. of timing. And hopefully as, as everyone is learning more about this and maybe the committees and the HOAs can, can expose themselves to more references like Xerces and become educated about the benefits of these and attitudes can just slowly change. They already are, I'm sure. But mm-hmm. until we get to the point where there's less um, maybe criticism, social criticism of these practices, one thing you could do as a middle ground is if you want to collect some debris, sort of do a, a minor scale cleanup, I would just transfer it to a different part of the yard if that's an option, just a more out-of-the-way area. uh, There was a a researcher at University of Maryland who was doing work on just some local, I think, near campus, some yards about leaving versus removing leaf litter. And he was looking at how that impacted the organisms overwintering in the soil. And he was finding that, as you might expect, keeping it is definitely beneficial, but even shredding it in place is I believe he was finding it was just as bad as taking it away entirely. So Hmm. the middle ground, if that's for the organisms, you would still get the benefit of sort of the compost material if you shred it. But I would argue that if you have to shred it, as opposed to removing it entirely, because you're keeping those resources in your yard on site, that's still preferable. But I would advocate if you want to remove it instead of shredding it into bits and definitely instead of bagging it, I would if you have the choice, put it in a different part of the yard that's going to be under less criticism or or anything and then just let it break down on its own. And because it'll break down on its own pace, those organisms, which are, of course, used to having that happen above their heads anyway, is going are going to emerge and can find new habitat, hopefully. But that my ideal would be just leave it exactly where it is. If you have to clear a little bit around, say, some ground covers that got drifts pl- blown on them or or um, something had a blight disease, you want to get more airflow, certainly you can you can tweak that. But generally, I just let it be. And staying on the topic of the ornamental garden versus the edible, when can we start digging, dividing our perennials, or even buying and planting new? Uh, I would say anytime the ground is workable is the catch-all advice, the general advice. Workable meaning both it's not frozen and it's not too wet. Um, if you grab some soil, uh, just maybe a couple inches beneath the surface, you form sort of a snowball in your hand and you let it go and you kind of bounce it a few times or poke it. If it kind of crumbles, maybe like a cake brownie texture, that's what you're going for. If it's big clods that are falling apart or you can make pottery clay out of it, that's not what you want to work with. But if the soil texture is such that it's of course not frozen still on the surface and it's not too recent um, after a rainfall, I would say you can go ahead and work with it. And as far as Planting new plants, the timing should be fine if you're installing, if you're moving something that's already been outside. Nurseries sometimes receive product from what we call hoop houses, which means they're overwintered outside, but they're given a little bit of, they're coddled a bit. They're given a little bit of temperature protection. So Mm -mm. if we have a hard freeze, but they've started to sprout already because those houses warm up a bit, even though they're vented, they're still going to warm up a little bit like a little greenhouse. Then they, there could be damage. Like let's say hellebores that have started blooming maybe a week or two before they would in the ground in your area and they're at a nursery, they might be a little more hard freeze tender. A frost is probably fine. And you could always throw something light over them, like even just an upside down pot, empty pot, or uh, the row cover that people use in vegetables to give them a little bit of frost protection. That would be all you would need overnight if we get a snap. But I would say if it's at a nursery this time of year, unless they're cautioning you something was greenhouse grown, uh, there should be signage most likely in that case, then you can go ahead and plant. Like I know hardy herbs, for example, will, will usually come out of a greenhouse. So they need more coddling until the frosts are finished. But Hardy plants should be fine. If you're taking something from one part of a yard to another, since they've been outside the whole time, that should also be fine. Uh, What I learned is that a rule of thumb, and I'm sure there's exceptions, is if a perennial is summer blooming, you can divide and move in spring. And if it's spring blooming, you can divide and move in summer or early autumn. So that might be a good way to sort of break it down. 
but uh-huh. um, I would say you're good to go if the ground's cooperating and nothing's super tender by being, you know, unintentionally forced in that way. Mm-hmm. And does the soil temperature impact really what you can move at this time? So we were talking about some of the air temperatures and the frosts yeah. and freezes, but would you wait, you know, you're waiting till at least you can dig in the soil, obviously, when it's not hard frozen. Yeah, the nice thing is air temperature, uh, well, for the sake of roots, which are definitely the, the plant part you want to protect, roots tend to be less cold hardy than above ground parts because they don't need to be there. The soil is very insulating, which is why plants in containers can be trickier as far as hardiness. That soil is much, that volume is smaller, but air temperature will fluctuate more than soil temperature will. So, and it, the soil temperature is going to lag behind the air temperature. So we warm, we'll warm up, but the soil is going to stay colder for a while. And this is the reason planting in autumn and doing lawn care in autumn for fescue is really great because the soil's relatively warm even though the air is cooling off so plant stress is is pretty low but back to spring the soil temperature is mostly important for two groups when you're trying to prevent weeds uh, especially if you do need to rely on some pre-emergent herbicides the ones that keep the weed seeds from sprouting knowing when some of those early sprouters are expected based on soil temperature crabgrass is the poster child for this that can be a good tracking method. Um, it's usually a little later than people think because we'll go through a warm spell and then it'll cool off again. But that soil temperature is colder than we may think until maybe April sometime. But the uh, Home and Garden Crabgrass page will have a link to a soil temperature map folks can use. And I'm sure there's plenty of other resources that have similar maps. And it's, it's checking it a few inches deep because the surface is going to fluctuate too much. And so that can be a benchmark for certain weeds. And then for plants like tomatoes, warm season veggies that need warm soil because they're not cold adapted plants, that's another thing you can check on. But for anything hardy, especially if it's already acclimated, uh, soil temperature is not that critical. It may affect how quickly something establishes because if we have a hard, hard freeze, and this is more autumn than it is now, it could frost heave, which means as the, the soil sort of changes and contracts and expands with freezing and thawing, it's going to essentially pop that unrooted root ball back out of the ground a bit and that can dry it out and expose it and that can cause problems. But I think frost heave is probably less likely now than earlier in the season when there's more more temperature changes through winter, but it's something to be aware of. And mulch will help with that because it's like a, like a little insulation. Mm-hmm. I think for me, soil temperature is critical for germinating like my cool season edibles. So I really want to know when I could put my peas in the ground, say, or when I can direct sow radishes and carrots. Yeah, especially if the catalog or packet has guidelines about that, then yes, determining the temperature from some of those maps, or you can buy your own soil thermometer, um, just like some people monitor the compost temperature, but that's a longer probe, of course, then that can help inform your planting decisions, yes. And so can we warm up the soil prematurely? So we were saying that the first inch or so um, obviously is affected by the ambient air temperature. And then below that, it's kind of insulated. But putting, you know, a black plastic or red plastic, I've seen farmers do that to heat up their rows. Does that have a big impact? It can. I don't know to what depth. And I'm sure it depends on soil characteristics like sandy versus clay versus Mm -hmm. damp versus drier. Um, It can do that, yes. Um, There's pluses and minuses, of course. Anytime you alter the conditions to favor germination, that can apply to weeds too. So if weed seeds are there, you may be pushing those ahead Uh, also. Yeah. And then um, I would say... There's one instance where I've seen uh, like a floating row cover material help in an unexpected way. Say say you have a cool season fescue lawn and you need to do some spot seeding. Maybe there was utility damage or maybe you have a bare spot you need to fill in. And even though autumn is the best time to be doing that, let's say you don't want to wait that long because the patch is going to erode or something. We did a sort of unofficial little trial uh, near one of our buildings here that had some fescue seeded last autumn, and it was seeded late. And so to help give it a little bit of frost protection, some of that frost blanket material, it's, it's not that heavyweight, was tacked down over the seed. And it did help, uh, again, this is just anecdotal, but it did seem to help the turf uh, weather those frosty nights better. Because just All you need is a few degrees, and that may also help in the spring, I would think. This is just... Um, an educated guess, but I think if you're sowing some either wildflower seed or, yeah, maybe early season veggie seed and maybe you get the timing off or our weather does something bizarre, 
that might give you a few degrees protection. That would be all you need just to get them through a rough patch for a really cold night. Hmm. I think that would be a great experiment to do and definitely would speed up the season a little bit, you know, not a lot. Right. Yeah. And this is the time of year people are asking me about fertilizing. Should I be fertilizing my lawn? Should I be fertilizing my azaleas, my other plants as they're emerging and pushing out new growth? I'm going to give an answer that everyone's probably going to think, wow, she doesn't want me doing anything. I'm going to say <laughs> no as a, as a blanket statement because I think we sometimes assume plants need more nutrients than they do. Um, I'm going to circle back to the soil testing again because if you're uncertain what your soil conditions as far as nutrients is like, see what the test shows you. Now, to be fair, it's not going to test nitrogen, which is a, it, the nutrient fluctuates way too much to be a, have a test be practical. And that is the nutrient plants go through the most. But it's not likely to be something you need to throw on there regularly unless there's a deficiency of something else, something notice, notable, like uh, say iron or phosphorus. Um, anecdotally, I'd say a lot of the soil test results I see it's uncommon to have Maryland or at least central Maryland soils deficient in anything markedly you know, drastic enough that you need to do a lot of fertilizing. So I think of fertilizer for plants like a multivitamin for people. And it may be a flawed analogy, but what I'm going for is the sunlight and all the other growing conditions. That's what the plant feeds on, essentially. The sunlight is plant food. It's going to manufacture food with that and the nutrients it pulls up from the soil. It's when things are deficient that you might want to supplement to get it back to sort of that baseline level. And so fertilizer can push plants into growth, but there's a consequence of that, which is all that lush growth sometimes doesn't have the chemicals in the leaves that the plant produces to keep pests at bay or to ward off diseases. And so it's kind of, it can be weaker growth. It could be more vulnerable to pest or disease attack. And so you could worsen the situation. If a plant is struggling with a problem, fertilizer is rarely the answer unless deficiency is the only thing that you've uh, identified. So I think we might be over eager to fertilize. Uh, lawn can be an exception because we expect a lot out of turf grass. We're constantly cutting half of the plant off. We're forcing it to deal with foot traffic. Sometimes you know, soil conditions aren't ideal. So lawn can be an exception, but even there I would be pretty responsible about making sure you've tested every few years and just there's a chart on our, our web resources that outlines especially for fescue because that's what most marylanders are growing when to fertilize and how much because there are limits with lawn especially that you do not want to go over because what we're trying to do is avoid nutrient pollution for the chesapeake both nitrogen and phosphorus being i think some of the two heavy hitters there you know even if a nutrient isn't washing out of the soil directly, like nitrogen and water, maybe the water soluble nitrogen, you're going to get nutrients that are binding to the soil. And even if they don't leach, if that soil moves because there's stormwater runoff, you're still getting that nutrient carried off into the stormwater system, into the creeks and the rivers and so forth. So I think we can back off on a lot of urges to fertilize in most cases. And when the soil test shows that there is an actual need, then uh, they will guide you as to how much to put down per square, you know, per hundred or thousand square feet usually. Mm -hmm. I agree. It's just way too much fertilizer applied everywhere. But I would say the one case where you probably do want to fertilize, maybe starting end of winter, early summer, is your indoor plants might be needing something or a refresher. And also when you're doing container gardening, because that's a little closed system there. Right. Yes. The nutrient capacity is more limited in a pot and like that nitrogen that can leach out, that may be something that becomes deficient after a while. So yes, container gardens can be an exception to more routine, like in, in the growing season fertilization and indoor plants too, because we usually pause that in the winter because they're not putting on a lot of, a lot of growth unless you're using strong grow lights. They, they're going to tell it's winter, you know, the days are shorter, the light's less intense. And so they kind of just settle down and sit for a while. And so once they detect that day length is getting longer, the light's getting brighter, they'll resume growing a little more actively. And that's when you can resume fertilizing. And I think if you get new vegetable transplants, a little nitrogen boost at the beginning there, and we have fertilizing vegetable materials online as well, that can give them a little jump start. But those would be sort of the outliers, I would say, because uh, we want the plants to kind of grow at their own pace. Um, forcing them with fertilizer only goes so far. If they don't have the rest of the resources they need to make use of it, the nutrients aren't doing any good. Great advice, Mary. So how can our listeners get in contact with you to find out more? 
I will look at the ask extension questions daily. Um, they come in 24 seven, but uh, we're here for you on the weekdays to answer any of the questions you send in. There's on the University of Maryland extension pages, there's a link at the top, plus on the Home and Garden Information Center homepage, there's a link for that submission form. And it kind of just works like an email. The system will send you when our reply comes through. You can share photos with us, which can be very helpful for diagnosis. You can submit uh, a scan or an attachment of the soil test results, and we can guide you on that. So indoor and outdoor gardening, uh, we have certainly expertise with um, a lot of different topics with the experienced folks that we work with. So we can answer your questions through Ask Extension. Great. Any final advice for the home gardener in their spring garden preparation? I would just say, just take cues from nature where you can. I'm, I'm an avid hiker and I like seeing, you know, the ephemeral wildflowers that will be out soon. Uh, they never get old. I can look at the same patch year <laughs> after year and it's always exciting. And I take a hundred pictures. But take cues from nature, like when you're doing garden planning, say, you know, see where plants tend to be growing as far as light and not the nuances of soil, but just broad things like, oh, I see this is on rocky hillsides in the woods, or I see this in soggy areas and something like that, and which plants you tend to see together often, because that may indicate, oh, this is a good wetland plant, or this is a good, uh, which could be a good rain garden plant in my yard. And just taking some cues like that, for example, uh, heuchera, or native heuchera, the coral bells, I've seen that in the wild around, say, Great Falls, and I'll see them almost exclusively in the crevices of just de organic debris that collects between the boulders and usually on like a vertical rock face. So I'll see them and, and the columbine too, it seeds itself in there. So you don't see it in sort of the richer or next to the path that's compacted. You don't see it in those soils. You see it in these areas that are kind of gritty and very free draining and probably skew on the dry side uh, at least part of the year. So I think taking those cues can help with layout ideas and combination ideas, especially as it pertains to natives, because you can walk out and see them in some of our local parks. Excellent. Thank you, Miri. Thank you, Kathy. Sinetti Plant Profile. Sinetti Paracallus Hybrid is a cool season annual with colorful flowers that resemble daisies in brilliant mauve, purple, and blue tones. They are prolific bloomers. They were bred by Suntory flowers in Japan by crossing members of the composite and aster families and are Cineraria relatives. Sinetti can live in temperatures as low as 35 degrees and they stop flowering once it reaches about 80 degrees. They are hardy to USDA zones 9 through 12. Plant Sinetti in full to part sun conditions with moist but well-draining soils. Feed them with liquid fertilizer. Do not let them dry out. They do well in containers and are great paired with other cool season annuals such as pansies, snapdragons, alyssum, and African daisies. After their first blooms are done, cut them back by half and enjoy a second flush of flowers a few weeks later. Sinetti, you can grow that. What's new in the garden this week? Well, my favorite little daffodils, the Rip Van Winkle, are starting to bloom. They bring me so much joy with their little pom-pom-like blooms. Because it's invasive species week, as I'm recording this, our garden tasks that we talked about on social media for our garden tip of the day were about combating those invasives. And we shared the best way to get rid of lesser celandine in your garden. We also attended the Cherry Blossom Festival kickoff event where the National Park Service is predicting peak bloom for the Washington DC cherry blossoms to be from March 23rd to 26th. And we'll see if that's correct. In the local gardening world, some events you might want to attend include my talk on ground covers that's coming up at the Philadelphia Flower Show on March 6th. 
on March 23rd, Saturday from 9 to 4, is the LAR Native Plant Symposium at the U.S. National Arboretum, and that does include a native plant sale on the side, so check that out at fona.org, that's F-O-N-A dot org, and then Dig It, a rare plant auction is taking place on April 27th in the evening at in Wilmington, Delaware, and this is part of the Delaware Horticulture, um, and that benefits them, so you go to the dch.org for more information and to register for that, and they are going to be hosting celebrated plant expert and friend of the Garden DC podcast, David Culp at that event. Happy gardening! In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen Terry Spade, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space while also making a lush outdoor living area you'll crave spending time in whether you're growing edible plants or beautiful flowers the 101 amazing growing ideas found in the urban garden will turn your tiny urban yard into a treasure trove of green you'll be proud to share with family and friends buy your copy today at your local retail bookseller or order it online now at amazon.com or bookshop.org Get low-maintenance alternative to lawns with the new book, Ground Cover Revolution, by Kathy Jets. Reducing the lawn is among the biggest trends in home ownership, with an endless stream of homeowners looking for an eco-friendly alternative to a traditional, everyday grass lawn. In the last few years alone, over 23 million American adults converted part of the lawn to a natural landscape, and now are looking to do even more. The biggest challenge to adopting this new ideal of perfect lawn is knowing how and when to replace your turf and which plants are the best ones for the job. Ground Cover Revolution is here with all the answers you need. Included are 40 in-depth profiles of plants that are perfect choices for replacing a grass lawn. There are options for sun, for shade, for dry and wet sites, and for various climates around the globe. There are choices that bloom, options that are evergreen, and selections that are deer-resistant. Author Kathy Jens has also included an incredibly useful chart that gives you all the details on each of the 40 choices for quick reference and to make your ground cover selection process even easier. Whether you want to replace the entire lawn or just reduce the amount of land dedicated to turf, Ground Cover Revolution will help you usher in a new and improved idea of what a beautiful lawn should be. Available at bookstores now and also at Quarto.com, where you can get 30% off using discount code GARDENING30. This is Christy Page with the Food Gardening Network with the last word on gathering grapefruits and gathering memories and how sometimes a simple chore can remind us of what is important. So for the past five years, my mother and I have been driving my grandmother to Florida each November. We stay for a week or so to get her all settled in and then we fly back home. She's happy to spend the winter in the warmth and we're happy knowing that she made it safely and is all set for the next five to six months. We have our set routines and rituals now. There are certain restaurants that we like to visit each year. There are a couple little shops that we like to take trips to and friends that we visit. Each year, we also pick one place to go for a bigger field trip. We've been to the Titanic Museum, SeaWorld, the Tampa Zoo, and several other fun places. We even have our own set of foods that we like to have each year. I have to make a stop at Krispy Kreme. There's no negotiation there. But most important is the fresh fruit. There's nothing like fresh oranges, fresh squeezed orange juice, and of course, grapefruits. I have always loved grapefruit. Ever since I was a little kid, it has been one of my favorites. On Sunday mornings, I would be at my grandparents' house and my grandmother would dish out fresh grapefruit for my grandfather and I, lightly sprinkled with sugar. I would take my first big bite and my grandfather would say, you're eating all of my grapefruit. I would giggle and quickly take another bite. It was our Sunday morning stand-up routine. My teen years came and I didn't appreciate my grandparents as much as I should have. Grapefruit Sundays didn't happen anymore. 
My grandparents started their winter treks to Florida, and each spring they would bring me home a bag of fresh grapefruit. They always remembered my love for this tart fruit. My grandfather's passed away, and my yearly treks to Florida my grandmother have started. We always hope that the grapefruits on our friend's tree have started ripening. This way, we can start our time here with a fun treat. Most years, there are at least a couple ready to be picked. We gather them up and bring them back to the house. My grandmother dishes them out and lightly sprinkles them with sugar. And as I take that first big bite, I hear in the back of my head, you're eating all of my grapefruit. For me, grapefruits will always be more than a mere fruit. They're a memory of some of the happiest times in my life. It may seem like a simple thing, but the joy of enjoying a fresh grapefruit with my grandparents is something that I will always treasure. This has been the last word on gathering grapefruits with Christy Page at foodgardening.com. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash Garden DC. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.blogspot.com. Thank you. You can find and follow Washington Gardener on Twitter, slash X, Instagram, and Pinterest at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook at Washington Gardener Magazine. Please take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Spotify and Apple. Open the Spotify or Apple app, search for Garden DC, check on the rate button, and select five stars.